You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. attributed to him as well. 
He is said to be omnipotent. He is said to be almighty and, and infinite in his power. All authority has been given unto him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, other divine attributes that are ascribed to him are words like holy and righteous and just and pure and sinless and spotless and perfect and all-wise. These are things that could not be said of any mere created being. They can only be said of the creature. So taking in the, the full panoply of what Scripture says regarding the Lord Jesus Christ in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are left to say that if, unless we are going to deny Scripture, we must affirm that He is fully God and He is fully man. And that He shares in fullness all that is the divine essence, all of the being and the substance and the nature of God. All that belongs to Yahweh is possessed by Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Though He is fully God, or though He is fully man, is also at the same time, by his nature, unchanging and fully God. That's the teaching of Scripture. So of all of those divine attributes that are said to be true of Jesus, he's perfect, holy, righteous, just, almighty, omnipotent, all wise, etc., uh, all knowing, our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 1 presents us with two more. The text that we're looking at today in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1, uh, in Hebrews 1 affirms that Jesus Christ is also, it affirms his eternality and his immutability. Two more characteristics that belong properly to God. His eternality and his immutability. You're thinking to yourself, here goes Jim, using big words to try to look smart again. That is true. Let me define these two big words for you. Eternality refers to the fact that he has no beginning and no end. That can only be affirmed of something that is not created. It can only be true of God. That he has no beginning and will have no end. You are not an eternal being. You are an immortal being. There's a difference between eternality and immortality. You are immortal, you have a beginning, but you will have no end. And this is true of all people who have ever lived. All people who have ever lived come into being at some point in time, but they will never go out of being, they will never go out of existence. So we are immortal, whether you are immortal and you spend your days in eternal bliss of heaven, or you are immortal whether you spend your eternal days in eternal destruction away from the grace of God in hell. But we are immortal beings, but we are not eternal beings because we came into being at some point in time in the past. Immutability refers to the fact that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In his essence and in his nature, he is entirely unchanging. The scripture affirms there is no shifting shadow within. So he has always existed in eternity past. Before he spoke anything into existence, before anything else was, including the angels, or a single molecule or atom in our universe, God was. And he had always been. It, it, at no point did he ever come into being or developed, and at no point was he ever created by anything else. That is that is probably the most difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. Is it not? I can, I, can, I can kind of grasp the idea of something that goes on forever, but something that has always existed, that I have a hard time getting my head around. Because everything that I'm familiar with that came into being is something. I have never handled or experienced or been around or seen anything that did not have to be in. Everything in our experience came into being at some point. God is the exception. And if Jesus never came into being, if he is an eternal being, then he is God. If he is immutable, if he never changes, and only God, can know, that can only be affirmed of God, then Jesus is God because he is eternal and because he is immutable. And those are two things that are affirmed before us in verses 10 to 12. And uh, that is going to be our passage today. This, these verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, are quotations from what we read at the end of Psalm 102 in our scripture reading. This quotation, I want to mention two things about this before we jump back to Psalm 102. Notice that this quotation, verses 10 through 12, this citation, is connected to just that brief word, and, that is the beginning of verse 10. 
In other words, he is still affirming what he says of the Son in verse 8. But of the Son, that is, of the divine Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, that is, God the eternal Father, Yahweh, says of the Son, verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the Father affirms that the rule and the throne of the Son is forever and ever. It endures throughout all generations. He sits on an eternal throne. And he further affirms in verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is the Father speaking of and to the Son. And then verse 10, and the Father, the eternal Father, also affirms this of the Son in verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. So verses 10 to 12 is another quotation of the Father speaking to the Son. In verse 8, it is the Father who says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In verse 10, it is the Father who says to the Son, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. Okay, so then there's a connection here, the brief connection with the word and. It's just another citation, this time from Psalm 102, previously from Psalm 45. And these two things are connected by this one theme that holds the citation from Psalm 45, verses 8 and 9, and the citation from Psalm 102 in verses 10, 11, and 12. The theme that unites those two things is this theme of being eternal, something that went on and on forever. You'll notice in verses 8 and 9 from Psalm 45, the Father affirms that the throne, the rule of the Son, lasts forever. In verses 10, 11, and 12, we see that the Father affirms that the person of the Son, the Messiah himself, lasts forever. You can't have an eternal kingdom unless you have an eternal king. You can't have a kingdom that doesn't have a beginning unless there is a king who had no beginning who has always ruled in that kingdom. And you can't have a king who will, a kingdom that will last forever unless you also have a king sitting over that kingdom who will also last forever. So if there is an eternal kingdom that goes on forever and ever, then there is an eternal king that goes on forever and ever. And Psalm 45 establishes for us that this kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and Psalm 102 establishes for us that this king is an eternal king. The second thing I want you to notice is that all the citations, and if you have that little piece of paper, have you been bringing this with you? little piece of paper that compares the citations with Hebrews chapter 1. If you have that, you'll notice that this citation from Hebrews 102, sorry, Hebrews 102, Psalm 102, this citation from Psalm 102 is the longest of all of the citations. This is three verses. So this gets the, the most attention in terms of what the author of Hebrews gives to us. Now with all that in mind, by way of introduction, keep your finger here or your hand or however it is that you mark your spot, and let's go back to Psalm 102. Because you know how we have to roll. We've got to look back at Psalm 102 and catch the entire context of this so that we know why it is that the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 102. So I'm going to give you, because this is 28 verses long, I'm going to give you kind of a brief overview of the entire psalm and focus in on a few aspects of it. You'll notice the theme of the psalm is stated before actually verse 1 in that little print, which is also part of the inspired and original psalm. It is a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. You'll notice that no name is given there as to the author of the psalm. We don't know who the psalmist is who is writing this. But it is a prayer of a man who is suffering under some kind of affliction. And you'll see that it is physical affliction, it's emotional affliction, there's some spiritual affliction going on. He is suffering, and this is his prayer. In the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through verse 11, the psalmist is describing his lament, describing his anguish and his suffering and his affliction, and, and how it is that he himself feels. Then, as is typical in the psalms, there is a change of focus as the psalmist, from verses 12 through 28, focuses instead on the nature and the character of God. 
So there is in the first half this focus upon his own situation, circumstance, and how he feels in the midst of that, and what he was enduring. And then he turns his attention and focuses upon God, and observes some things about God, which are of comfort to him, as he understands who it is that God is, and what God has done. So there's a focus change between verses 11 and verse 12. So let's read first his lament, and you will see that this is the lament that anybody who has lived for any period of time at all on this earth can relate to this. Verse 1, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly, for my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a heart. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. He's, he's under so much suffering and affliction that the concerns of, of bodily concerns of daily demands like eating bread just don't, don't even occur to him. He's fasting, but not because he's on some spiritual pilgrimage. He's fasting because he doesn't even think of eating. He's just under such affliction and suffering. Verse 5, because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. He's describing physical anguish here. Verse 6, I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I become like a lonely bird on a housetop. And this is how he felt, like a bird sitting on a housetop. Chirp. Silence. Chirp. He can cry. He can bellow. He can express his suffering. It is as if there is nobody to hear him. It is as if his cry is unnoticed and unheard. He feels all alone, like a lonely animal sitting on top of the housetop with nothing around him. Verse 8, my enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me use my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. He recognizes because of the sin, that there's some aspect of his own sin that has caused this, this affliction that he is in. He lives in a sinful world. Because of your indignation, verse 10, and your wrath, you've lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a length and shadow, and I wither away like grass. Look out in your yard right now. Is there any grass there? No. Uh, covered up by the snow. Well, the grass in my yard is brown. It didn't turn green yet. Last summer it just withered away. It was there one day, it was gone the next. It dries up and it's dead. This is how the psalmist feels. I wither away like grass. I perish. He, he's part of this, this whole creation that just groans under the curse of sin. And he feels like the rest of creation just withering away, being blown away and cast away from God. My days are lengthened like a shadow and I wither away like grass. And I notice the change of perspective in verse 12. Before we get to that, those first 11 verses, those first 11 verses could be prayed by anybody who's lived any period of time in the face of this planet. If you just feel like the older you get, the more your days are just lengthened like a shadow. And they're here today and gone tomorrow. You just feel like your kids are growing up, your grandkids are going up, and pretty soon you're just going to wither away the grass and die. Right? Because in the Solomon's Lament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he comes to the conclusion, vanity is vanity, it's all vanity, and chasing after the wind. This has created such anguish of soul in Solomon as he observed the way of creation and realized that he was just like the rest of creation, bound to perish, bound to die, bound to wither up and, and, and wither away just like the grass. But then look at the change of focus, verse 12. You will Lord abide forever. The grass withers and I wither, but you will Lord abide forever. He lives forever. On and on, endless ages, without beginning and without end, that is our God. And your name will and your name to all generations. Now, notice the contrast in, in this word, the name, between verse 8. Look at verse 8. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. Look at verse 12. The name of the Lord endures to all generations. There is, there is, I think, and you'll notice the name of the Lord is mentioned in verse 15. It is mentioned in verse 21. This seems to be an emphasis with the psalmist. He is describing his own name, which is used as a curse, which just withers away and vanishes and is quickly forgotten. 
Just like Solomon lamented in this life, we do all these things and our name is forgotten, it's buried in the sands of time, it is lost to history and we are remembered no more. That's the way of all men. And so, so it is with our name as we wither like grass, we're buried by the sands of time and remembered no more. But the name of the Lord endures for generation after generation forever. The name of the psalmist is quickly forgotten. And I think that that may be why the psalmist didn't name himself in the psalm. He's, he's an unnamed man. Almost as if to say, it doesn't even matter who wrote this. This is everybody's story. We all wither away like grass. Our name is forgotten. In fact, whoever wrote this psalm has been forgotten in history. We don't even know who it was. The name of the Lord endures from generation to generation. Verse 13. You will arise and have compassion on Zion for his time to be gracious to her. For the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and pity for her dust. Uh, so the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. He's describing Jerusalem itself, Zion, which was in ruins at the time. God would have mercy upon her and would raise her up. This, by the way, is a messianic activity. It's something that is attributed to the Messiah. And then he says in verse 15, so that... In the time to come when Jerusalem is established and Zion is raised up again, all the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. This is talking about that kingdom that is to come, where all the kings of the earth will bow down to that one sovereign king. Verse 16, for the Lord has built up Zion, he has appeared in his glory, he has regarded the prayer of the destitute, and has not despised their prayer. This is confidence. Because God lives from generation to generation, from age to age, and he never comes to an end, God hears our prayers. Remember the beginning of the psalm? Hear me, answer me. I feel like a chirping bird on a rooftop. I'm all alone. I'm without anybody. Lord, answer me and hear my prayer. He feels as if God has not heard his prayer. But then, after he comes to understand that God is a God who never ends and his name is established through all generations, he has this confidence. The Lord has heard the prayer of the destitute. Verse 18. This will be written for generations to come and people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Because God lives forever. His praise will endure forever, and the people who are yet to come beyond our generation will live and endure to praise the name of the Lord. For he has looked down from his holy height and from heaven, the Lord has gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who are doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, this is what all of history is looking forward to. When the kingdoms of the earth serve the Lord, that is his kingdom. Verse 23, he has weakened my strength in the way he has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Notice he is comparing how long he lives and exists to how long God lives and exists. Right? God takes me away in the midst of my days. The years of God do not come to an end. I perish, I wither away, God endures forever. This is the contrast that the entire psalm is built around, that contrast. Verse 24, verse 25. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Those last three verses are the three verses quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 28, the children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Because God endures, he will establish his purposes, and his people will live before him and dwell before him forever. That is the promise. So here's the psalm. You and I, like all of creation, are destined to perish. We come onto the scene and we perish from the scene. Forgotten in the sands of time and unwritten through all of history, we appear briefly and then like smoke we vanish away, like grass we wither away, like a chirping bird that's there for a bit and then he flies away. We are gone, never to be heard from, never to be remembered again. That's the contrast, that's us. And then there is our God. 
His kingdom and His purposes and His nature goes on and on forever and ever. He has established His name endures from generation to generation. So here is the question that this psalm answers. To what or to whom is it that we as perishing people bound up with this creation, destined to perish like all the rest of creation, to whom or to what is it that we look? And the answer to that is to a God that does not change. We who change constantly look to a God who does not change. We who are not eternal beings who have a beginning look to one who has no beginning. We who are destined to perish and to die look toward one who never dies. That is the hope of the believer. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 51 verse 6, or I should say God says in Isaiah 51 verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look at the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. We're part of this creation. This is sin-cursed, fallen creation. And we, like the rest of creation, are withering away and wearing out like garments, and then we die just like all of creation does. And then God says this, But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. This is the hope of a believer. See, I'm a perishing person. You are a perishing person. We need a righteousness that does not perish. We need a holiness before God that endures forever. We need a life that can never end. That's what we need. Because we perish, and because we are wasting away, we need something that does not waste away. And that is the righteousness and salvation of God. So that is what Psalm 102 is all about. Now, before we turn back to Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to notice two things. First, this passage in the Old Testament clearly speaks of Yahweh. Clearly speaks of the God of Israel, the great I am, the one that Moses at the burning bush. This is the Lord, the eternal Lord, the God, the covenant God of Israel that is being described in Hebrews chapter, uh, in Psalm chapter 102. These verses like this are often attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. New Testament writers thought nothing of doing this. They didn't think anything of taking a passage. They clearly described Yahweh in the Old Testament as saying, yeah, that's Jesus in the New Testament. And they do this repeatedly. This is one of the evidences that Jesus Christ is God. So I want you to notice that first. Second, I want you to notice that Jesus Christ here um, is said to be the one to be described in verses 24, sorry, 25 through verse 27. In other words, the author in Hebrews chapter 1 quotes the words of this psalm as coming from the lips of the Father, anthropomorphically speaking, of course, the, the mouth of the, the words of the Father to and about the Son. But in Psalm 102, these words are the words of the psalmist describing Yahweh. Okay? In Psalm 102, it is the psalmist who is describing Yahweh. In Hebrews chapter 1, the exact same words are said to be the Father describing the Son. You see the difference there? Now, how, how do we resolve this? And this is a little bit difficult, but there's something... At some point in Hebrews, we're going to, I'm going to tackle, and I don't know when this is going to be. It's probably going to be at a time when you're far more awake than you are this morning. But at some point in the book of Hebrews, we're going to have to tackle this issue of how is it that the New Testament treats Old Testament passages. Because all the way through, we've seen this all the way through this first chapter, there are words that describe God that are said to be the psalmist words that are then said to be the Father speaking those words to the Son. And the, the short answer to this is that this is that the author of Hebrews is reading the Psalms in a Christocentric way, a Christ-centric way. In other words, like we described last week, in the psalmist's own day, he is describing something that was true of him, something that was true of his situation, his God. But then beyond the psalmist's initial words is this reality that is distant to him. It is a reality that is greater than what even what he is describing. It is a fulfillment that is bigger and better than the fulfillment that is initially his in his own time. Does that make sense? 
So from the psalm, from the perspective of the psalmist, he is looking, he is describing this, but he is looking to and describing though something in his own time, something that was greater even beyond his own time. And we saw that last week with what he done, uh, what Hebrews did last week with the Psalm 45, and we see it here in Psalm 102 as well. Though the psalmist is describing Yahweh, Hebrews says this is Yahweh the Father describing Yahweh the Son, speaking of Yahweh the Son. Now, if those words in verses 25, 26, and 27 are said to be the words of the Father spoken to and of the Divine Son, then does that not mean that maybe the rest of the psalm is Christocentric as well? In other words, are there other elements of this psalm that would, unbeknownst to the author, but to our eyes we can see it, would be describing the Son? Not just verses 25 to 27. Go back to verse 1. And probably, I promise you I won't belabor this, but go back to verse 1, and I want to quickly read through this again, and you ask yourself, does this sound like it could be describing the Lord Jesus Christ? Hear my prayer, O God, let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, for my days have been consumed and smoke, and my bones have been scorched like the hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness that become like an owl of waste places. I lie awake and become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. So we can quote New Testament passages from almost every verse in those first eight verses. Can we not? What would this describe? This describes the suffering of some man. These verses should just as easily describe the anguish of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everything is parallel because verse 10, he says, because of my indignation, because of your indignation and your wrath, that you have lifted me up and cast me away. So and again, as we've seen in other passages, not everything that is described here is a one-to-one correspondence with the Son. But as the author is looking through his own experience and circumstances, he is seeing something that has a greater reality, and that greater reality is the Lord Jesus Christ. If this entire psalm is to be read in some sense, in that dual fashion, which the author of Hebrews seems to suggest that it should be, if that is the case, then the first part of this psalm describes the prayer of anguish of the afflicted one, who is afflicted not for his own sin, but for the sins of others, who on the cross could, could be describing his bones clinging to his flesh, and eating ashes, and weeping, and all the mixture of anguish that that would describe in his own crucifixion and suffering. And if that anguish that is being described here is the anguish of the Son on the cross, and the later part of this is the words of the Father to the Son, then the words of the Father to the Son, verses 25 to 27, is the answer to the Son's anguish. So put these two together. It is the Son who says, I wither away and perish like grass, because Jesus in his humanity did just that. He died. And he went the way of all men. He suffered death for us. So he dies in his humanity. But the Father's answer to that is to say to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your name endures throughout all generations. Your people will be established before you. So though the Son feels as if he is perishing and experiences that death, the Son affirms you're, you're not withering away like grass. That may be how the Lord Jesus felt in his humanity as he suffered our wrath. But his name endures for all generations. He does not come to an end because he is the eternal king who sits over the eternal kingdom. See that? Psalm 102 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews is telling us now. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we will look now through Hebrews chapter 1 at three things that are referred to the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 10 through 12. Three things. First, that he is uncreated. Second, that he is unending. And 
and third, that he is unchanging. He's uncreated, unending, and unchanging. <clears throat> Verse 10. Now remember, the, the author of Hebrews here is taking this passage and he is saying this is what Yahweh the Father says to the one who is the Son, who is also called Yahweh. The Father says to the Son, you, Lord, the Father calls the Son, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. This is poetic language to describe creation. Obviously, uh, the divine Son is eternal nature in his essence, as God does not have literal hands. So he describes creation as being as if the sun were to take and lay a foundation, something solid and, and seemingly everlasting that is established and, and, and solid upon which you build a house, like a frame of mind, build a foundation before putting in a house. So it is that he laid the foundation of the earth. And the stars are the works of his hands. Now, all the way through the Old Testament, it is Yahweh who is said to be the creator. All the way through the Old Testament. And we get to the New Testament, we find out that that creator, who is Yahweh, is none other than Jesus Christ. And so he is affirming here what he said in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, that he has spoken to us through the Son, who is the heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. And we saw when we looked at verse 2, and I don't need to believe this because we spent a whole message just talking about Jesus Christ as the creator, but we saw in verse 2 that when he affirms that Jesus is the one through whom he made God the Father made all of the worlds, he is not describing just our planet, just our earth, our galaxy, ourselves, our solar system, or our universe. He is describing everything in it. It is the most comprehensive word you could use to describe all of reality, all of the events of history, things unseen and seen, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Whether the principalities, the powers, the dominions, or rulers, whatever it is, he has created all things. There's nothing that's come into existence that he himself has not made. And if that is true, then logically Jesus Christ cannot be a created thing. If he is the creator and he has created all things, then he cannot himself be a created thing, because that's a contradiction. He must himself be the uncreated creator who had no beginning and will have no end. That's what scripture affirms of him. So the second thing, not only is he uncreated, but he is unending. Look at verse 11. And they will perish, that is, the earth and the heavens, those things which he has made, they will perish, but you remain. Jesus Christ is unending. This is the Father describing the Son. Everything else will perish. Yes, humanity will perish. The grass will perish. The little bird on the rooftop will all perish. Everything around you is temporary. Look around you. There's nothing that you have ever seen that will last forever, except for the soul's people here, not even the bodies of the people here will last forever in their current form. Everything that is created is created to be temporary. Not going to last forever. But our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, does live forever. He does last forever. He is without end. He had no beginning. And he will have no end. He is the eternal God. And since he will last forever, everything else will come to a close. Everything else will be wrapped up long before he it never perishes. He will never perish. And when everything, a million years from now, when all of this is but a distant memory, he will be. Have your mind on that. That's just difficult. Everything around us will perish. But he endures and he lasts forever. And it will all be, verse 11 says, they will perish and remain, and they will all become old like a garment. That is, all of creation is wearing out. Everything that is created is created to be temporary. It's created to not last forever. Every physical thing is created to be temporary. It's not going to last forever, and it will all wear out like a garment. So like a piece of, like an old shirt that you've worn just way too many times, this creation, this world is just getting old. It's not nearly as old as evolutionists and the old earthers claim it is, but it is getting old, and it's wearing down. Everything's wearing down. Just this last week, we saw that the white rhino was becoming extinct. Okay? Species are becoming extinct. Now, that shouldn't be a problem for the evolutionists, because according to them, new species just pop into being out of nothing all the time. 
So the extinction of a species is really no big deal. It's just more species are just going to pop into being, and we shouldn't really worry about that. But we know from a creationist perspective that everything is wearing down and everything is wearing out. Things are not getting better. The mountains are eroding. The rocks are falling apart. Eventually, it's all going to perish. I remember, I think it was when I was in eighth grade, I remember learning um, that our sun was eventually going to burn out because it's consuming. I mean, millions of metric tons of, of whatever it burns each and every day. It's consuming this large amounts of it. I mean, you can't have a fire that big. It's not burning stuff up, right? Now, I always knew this as a kid. This when stuff burns. You, you throw wood on it, and the wood is eventually consumed, but it, it consumed, but it never occurred to me that the sun is doing the exact same thing. So I learned in science class that eventually, like five billion years from now, our sun is going to burn out. This worried me for weeks. I had a hard time dealing with that because I thought, not that I expected to ever live to that point, but all I could think of was the people five billion years from now who would be out working in their garden one day and suddenly the sun would go out like a, like a candle in the wind. Not to put the song in your head, but the sun, the, the sun would go out just like a candle in the wind and be snuffed out and they'd be sitting there gardening thinking, okay, what happened to the sun? And then it would start getting cold and colder and colder. Pretty soon they'd be so cold they'd just freeze to death. Or that the sun would diminish in its capacity to keep us warm over a long period of time to get colder and colder and colder every year until eventually we all froze to death and had nothing to eat. Five billion years from now, but us horrified to think that. And then my science teacher said eventually all emotion in all of the universe has to stop. Eventually, the, the, the Earth is going to slow down its rotation on its axis. Eventually, the Earth is going to stop revolving around the Sun. There will eventually be a complete heat death and a complete motion cessation of all motion and energy as all motion and energy is used up and as inertia takes over and all of creation dies, this motion and heat death. Now, this is 10, 15, 20 billion years in the future. It was going to happen. But I just can't imagine the, the moon floating off into space, away from the Earth somewhere, and then just eventually stopping and everything just sitting above you. Now I know how it's all going to end. Like a scroll, the Lord Jesus Christ is just going to rule us all. Not going to die in death. Not going to die emotionally. Not going to last another five billion years. Hasn't even lasted a full 20,000 years. Not going to last that long. Eventually, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to roll up all of creation, just like you roll up to hold up a shirt. Awesome. That's what scripture says. Isaiah 34, verse 14, describes the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. Revelation 6, 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll and was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And Hebrew says they're going to be changed. Verse 12, like a mantle, you rolled them up. This is this is this is magnificent that this is said of the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes no more effort for him to roll up all of creation like a scroll than it does to you to roll up like a scroll. Peace paper. Or for you to fold a garment. How much energy does it take for you to fold a garment? Nearly nothing. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a statement of his sovereignty and his powers over all of creation. When the time is up, he's just going to fold it all together and recreate something else. All of this creation will be recreated and will become new. 2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will destroy with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, rolled up like a scroll, burned up and consumed, completely remade, Everything around us is going to be destroyed by fire. Everything. That's what the future holds. Not a heat death, but being, it's the opposite, being consumed by a consuming fire. He is unending. And fourth, or third, he is unchanging. He is unchanging. Look at verse 12. Like a mountain mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. 
But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The book of Hebrews begins with this affirmation that Jesus Christ is unchanging. And the book of Hebrews ends with the same statement in chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, in his essential nature as the divine son, he is unchanging. In his humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience. In his humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ learned affliction, learned suffering, experienced those things in his humanity. He grew, he learned to walk, he learned to eat, he learned to blow his nose, he learned to comb his hair, he learned to make furniture with Joseph, all of that. He learned and developed and grew in favor and stature with God and with men. That is true of Jesus Christ and his humanity. But the divine nature, which was eternally existent before he was ever incarnated, before anything was spoken into existence, that divine nature, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ as fully God, that divine nature is always unchanging. And the fact that he is unchanging, that is something that can only be said of God. Only God can be said to be unchanging. Everything that is created changes. Everything. There is nothing that has ever been created or that has a beginning that has not changed. Everything that is created changes. That is the nature of what creation, of that which is creation. Now when you meet somebody you haven't seen in a long time, you shake their hand, you give them a big hug, hold them at arm's length, and you say to them, what? You haven't changed anything. That's an outright lie. It's a horrible lie. What you mean by that is, you're not hearing me as great, fat, bold, and ugly as I thought you would be at this point in physical existence. Or you might say it a little more kindly and say, the years have been far kinder to you than you deserve. And you say to them, you have not changed, when in reality, they have been changing from the moment that they came into being. You're all, you, compared to how much God has changed, which is nothing, you have changed radically since you woke up this morning. Everything about you has been in constant flux since you woke up this morning. You went to bed full last night, you woke up hungry this morning, and then you weren't hungry because you ate breakfast, and now you're hungry all over again. That is, that is constantly changing. You had no energy, and then you had energy. You were alert, and then are sleepy, and then you were alert, and now you're sleepy again, and you're hungry again, and your blood levels have changed, the oxygen content of your blood has changed. Since you woke up this morning, millions upon millions of your cells have died. A lot of them brain cells, and millions upon millions of your cells have come into being and multiplied. Every cell in your body is different today than it was when you woke up. You can never say that something has not changed. Everything about us physically, physiologically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and socially changes moment by moment. In fact, there's no second of your life in which you are exactly identical to the previous second of your life. We are like all of creation. We are constantly in flux and change. Everything about us changes constantly, all the time. Even when you die, this is going to happen to your body. It's going to change a whole lot. Rather rapidly, rather quickly. Everything about us is changing. That never changes. Never changes. James 1.17, every good thing is given, every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and whom there is no variation or shaking shadow. There's nothing about God that changes one bit to change the shadow. There's, there's no variation. There's no, not a shadow of difference in who he is today compared to who he was million years ago. No difference. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you will son to Jacob are not consumed. There's, there's something that for the believers, good, good news about the fact that God does not change. Think about it this way. If God did change, he only changed in one of two directions. He could either become inferior to what he was before or superior to what he was before. Now, if he became superior to what he was before, then that would mean that God was inferior to what he is now if he has changed, Right? That would mean that whatever God was before, he was not perfect. Because that which is perfect cannot change and become more perfect. So if God is infinitely perfect in all of his attributes, in all of his character, and in his essence and nature, 
He is utterly perfect in that way that he cannot change. Because if he changes, it means he, be, he can't become more perfect. So if God changes to become better than what he was before, then he was inferior or lesser, and therefore not perfect before. And if God changes and becomes lesser or inferior to what he was before, then that means that he might change again and become even less than he was before. He was more inferior, even more inferior. Who knows that 10,000 years from now, God is not radically inferior to who he was yesterday. If he could change. But because he does not change, he can never become more perfect. And that means that he is perfect. And that's good news for you, Christian, because it means that even if you die today, and you go into the grave, 10,000 years from now, God's affections for you, his love for you, his purposes, his plan, his promises to you, be just as certain as they are today because God doesn't change. God doesn't love Noah and Abraham and David any more today than he did when they were alive. He doesn't. He can't. Because his love is perfect. And he can't love you any more tomorrow than he does today. And he can't love you any more 10,000 years today, 10,000 years from now than he does today. His purposes and his plans have never changed. Because God has not changed, and he does not change, we are not consumed. That's good news for us as Christians. But it is horrible news for the unbeliever. And here's why it's horrible for the unbeliever. Because if you die today, 10,000 years today, from now, God's wrath, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness will be unchanged from the way that they are today. He will feel the same way about you 10,000 years from now as he does this very moment when you are unpenitent and unrepentant and in your sin. It will not change. You're not going to find 10,000 years from now that you can slip away from his notice or hope that somehow his righteousness and his holiness make different demands on you than they do today. He does not change. That's good news for us as Christians. All of creation may change. Everything that is created is changing. And one day they will all be rolled up. Our God is an eternal God. Our King is an eternal King. Our Savior is an eternal Savior. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is our God. That is our Savior. That is our King. That is our confidence and our hope in a world that is constantly perishing. Let's pray to you. Our Father, we do love you and we thank you that you are the unchanging God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the unchanging God. Holy Spirit, that you are unchanging in all of your perfections and all of your attributes and all of your glories, your majesty, your righteousness, your holiness, everything about you does not change. And that is good news for us. We thank you for that confidence that we can have and we pray that you would, by your grace, encourage our hearts in these truths that our Lord Jesus Christ is uncreated, unending, and unchanging. We're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is the glory of your nature and it is the good and it is for the good of your people. We thank you for in Christ. 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 Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.